Man, I want to first just thank y'all for having me. Thank Aaron, even though he's not here, for allowing me the opportunity to preach in this pulpit. As I came in this morning, I it said I'm not going to get Aaron in trouble, but I saw Miss Brenda, and she was just like, "You were terrible as kid." <laughs> so it is a it's a testament to God's grace that I'm even standing here before you this morning. But um. Matt did correctly tell you guys, we did just accept a call from uh, Gulf Gardens Baptist Church and kind of skipping out on Sunday school to be here with you this morning. So I do have to rush and, and be in that pulpit as soon as uh, we get out of here. So I do want to have some discourse and, and talk with you guys. I just don't know if I had the opportunity today, but me and Aaron have been kind of talking about ways that, that we can all kind of work together maybe to do some ministry here on the coast. So hopefully we'll have that opportunity. If you will, open your Bibles or electronic devices or whatever you may use to the, the book of Obadiah. In the Old Testament, uh, it's a short little book. It's about a page and a quarter in, in my Bible. But um, as you get there, I just want to kind of just introduce the, the scripture by what I was doing last night. Um, I graduated the University of Mississippi, and uh, we had a tough, tough defeat last night. We played uh, number one Alabama, and as I was sitting in my buddy's house, I had my old Miss shirt on. I had my, my pawpaw in my hand as if I was at the game, and I was just cheering on. Ole Miss to defeat. I began thinking about what we take pride in in our society. And I'm looking at my kids, and, and man, they got their pom-poms going. And, and man, we are just taking pride in, in our football team. And for some reason, we continue to do that season after season after season, <laughs> even though we know the outcome. I told my wife when I woke up yesterday morning that I literally long for the day when the fact that we are Ole Miss is not an excuse to lose. <laughs> <laughs> but we do take pride in so many things. And that's kind of what I want us to look at today. If you found the book of Obadiah in your Bibles, I'm just going to read from this. And I'm not going to ask you to stand as we read God's Word, because I'm going to read a, a good chunk of this this uh, message that, that he shares with us. Starting in verse 1, it says, The vision of Obadiah. This says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If great gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasure sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of the Mount of Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from the Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over 
over the day of your brother, in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the, in the day of the distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. As you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape. It shall be holy and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. And the house of Jacob shall be a fire. And the house of Joseph a flame. And the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them. And there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you for today, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity just to gather here and just worship you, Lord. Just praise you in song, Father. Open your word and just study your word and take from it, Lord, a message that you that you proclaim to us, Father. But we just pray that you just move in a mighty and powerful way among us today, Father. And that we can leave here today different than we were when we walked in. Father, just be with, be with us now as we study your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So just looking at the book of Obadiah, Obadiah literally means slave of Yahweh or servant to the Lord. And in this little book here, we have about 21 verses that he shares with us. It's the smallest book in the Old Testament. At the same time, it's never quoted in the New Testament. It's kind of an obscure little book that we could easily just skip over. But in these 21 verses, he shares so much important information with us in the way that God looks at his people. But when we look at the prophets of the Old Testament, we typically see a prophet proclaiming the wrath of God on an unrepentant people group, which is typically Israel. Throughout the Old Testament, God is proclaiming his wrath on his people group, his covenant people group, and they're unwilling to repent. But we see here in the book of Obadiah, he's calling out God's wrath to Edom, to the, the, the family line of Esau. And what we see here is that God actually has sovereign control over all nations and all people groups. And that's what's so amazing about God. He's showing this to us even in the Old Testament. What we see here is that he brings two messages in his writings. The first message he brings to Judah. The first message is that God knows and will judge the sins of his people's enemies. Is directed to Edom, I'm sorry. And Edom was the descendants of Esau who lived like southeast of the Dead Sea. And second is a message that the day of the Lord will bring deliverance for God's people and focuses on the vindication of Israel and the establishment of God's kingdom on earth. But what we see here is that these two people groups, if you go all the way back to Genesis 25-25, and we see the birth of Jacob and Esau, man, they have been at each other's heads. They've been battling. They've been warring against each other since they were in the womb. And that's amazing to think about. Through all this time, we can go back to the moment they were conceived. And they've been battling with each other. And what takes place here in Obadiah is he brings this message to Edom just after the Babylonian takeover. And he brings this message to them. And what I want to suggest to you this morning is that Edom's crime was pride. I want to share with you this morning just four warnings or four views that we see from this book that God has Regarding our pride. As I was sharing with you this morning, man, I take pride in, in my Ole Miss football. 
I take pride in my kids. Sometimes I put pride in the wrong areas. I think that as a society, as a nation, as a city here on the coast, we do the same thing. We put pride in a lot of things that aren't godly, including what we have done. The first thing I want to share with you is that pride is deceptive. If you will, look in verse 3. And Obadiah, as he's sharing this message with them, he says, The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? What I want you to do is just try to imagine. I'm not real good. I tell my wife I need to take technology from the pulpit or some class like that in seminary so I know how to use PowerPoints while I'm preaching. But have you ever seen images of, of Petra? Petra was probably the capital city of Edom. If not the capital city, it was the major city in the kingdom of Edom. And what they did is they literally carved out the city in the rocks. There's, they're based in mountainous terrain. There's peaks that raise up about 5,700 feet high. I mean, they're surrounded like a fortress. And what they're doing is they're taking pride in what they have built. And I want you to do this for me. Not, not here, not now. But when you go home today, get on Google and just type in Petra. And when it comes up, click images up top. And I want you to see what Petra looks like. I mean, it is amazing the technology that they must have had to carve out this city in the rocks. And you can almost see the effort and the works that they would have put into this city. Man, we would all take pride in what they accomplished. But what they're taking pride in is the fact that something that they did. And as I think of this, this word Petra, which we kind of go back to the Septuagint, we look at where the Greek would have came from for this word, and it literally means rock. I start thinking about how pride deceives us, and even in our own churches, pride deceives us in so many ways. My wife and I, as we came down to the coast, we recently went to a church. It was celebrating their building. And I started thinking about this text as we were in there. And the guy actually got up and preached a great message. He's like, if you're here for the building, you've missed the point of this building. This building's a launching ground for us. But what I began to realize is so many people would come out that day to celebrate what they had built. I began thinking back, and if you want to just turn in your Bibles, if you want to follow with me, I'll just read it to you. In Matthew 16, 15 through 18, Jesus has a discourse with Peter kind of concerning this. See, pride can be so deceptive to us. But Jesus says to Peter, he saith unto him, is where it starts. We'll be in Matthew 15 through 18. He saith unto them, but who say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee, Thou art Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We all know this discourse that Jesus has with Peter. And there's so many different views what it's actually regarding. But I want us to take about today, and also what I want us to take from that is what Jesus says in this discourse with Peter. I don't really care about where our theology stands on it. And I'm, I'm big on theology, but I don't think that's the point of this passage. Whether we think that this is when the Catholic Church named the first pope, whether we think it's Peter's confession of faith that Jesus says he's going to build this church on, but when we go back to the original language, what we see is that Jesus made upon all words. He says, you are Peter. In the Greek, it literally says, you are Petros. He says, but upon this rock, Petros. Or it says Petros for Peter, Petros for the rock that he's talking about. What Jesus is saying here 
goes beyond theology. What he says here is that I will build my church. I will build my church. Not you, Peter. Not the disciples. Not the apostles. I will build it. He says that, Peter, you are nothing but a small pebble in the Greek. But upon this rock, I believe that's what Jesus is saying to him. Upon this rock, upon this boulder, this magnitude of rocks that are put together, I will build my church. I will be the foundation of my church. And upon my shoulders is what Jesus is saying. I will build my church. There's nothing that you're going to do, Peter. There's nothing the apostles are going to do. I will build it through y'all. I will raise up men and pastors and deacons and elders, and I will build my church through their ministry. And as I came to this verse and I started looking at it in this light, I, I began to realize that I've done the same thing that Edom's done. I've gone into churches to pastor and youth pastor and thought that I was doing it all. Came in on fire and I was so excited about the ministry that I was about to accomplish. Let me tell you, pride can deceive you. I realized quickly that without Jesus, without him being that boulder, without Jesus being that Petros, that huge foundational element of any ministry, that church will not be built. Because Jesus tells us in this passage, I will build my church. And what we see here, when we look at Petra, this city built out of rocks, they literally built it themselves. They put their own pride into it. And they felt that they were indestructible, that you couldn't get to them. Because physically you couldn't. But let me just tell you, God can. God will bring us down for our pride. And he utterly is going to destroy Edom off the face of the map. Like I said, I want to suggest that their punishment is regarding their pride. But in looking at that passage of scripture, just look at what Peter says in Peter, in 1 Peter 2, 6. He says, wherefore also it is contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Sion a chief cornerstone, elect precious, and he that believes on him shall not be confounded. Peter's agreeing with Christ in his own writings, saying that Jesus is that cornerstone. Jesus is that foundational rock that everything in this church is going to be built off of. Similar to you guys, I, I just took Gulf Gardens. It's a small church. It was almost destroyed after Katrina and lost everybody. It almost feels like a plant church. And the thing about it is, it's so amazing, is I can go in this church and just say, man, Jesus said he will build this church. Jesus will build Redeemer Baptist Church. Jesus will build Gulf Gardens Baptist Church because it's his church. It's his. In Ephesians 2, 18 through 22, Paul shares the same thing regarding what we put our pride in when it comes to our church. It says, for through him we have both access by one spirit unto the Father. Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and who? Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building, fitly framed together, groweth into a holy temple in the Lord. And whom you also are building together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. You see, all of us, all of the people that are at God's elect, and however you view that, it's up to you. We fit together in this foundation of the church. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. The apostles are there around the foundation. And we're bricks that just keep building this building. But it goes back to the fact that Jesus said, I will build my church. Do we believe that today? Do we put our faith in Christ? Or do we put our faith and our pride in some building? Or in some curriculum or some program or some person even? Every time you see a pastor leave a church, what happens? People quit coming. What's their pride in? 
Is there pride in a man? Look, I love your pastor death, and this is not against him. <laughs> I'm just saying. I've seen it in my own walk. When we leave a church, people stop coming. And the pastor before me leaves a church. Where all the people go? What do we put our pride in? If it's anything but Christ, we need to readjust our view. See, we can't allow our sinful pride to deceive us into thinking that we built God's church. We must be humble servants and understand that God and God alone built His church. And His grace allows us. That's this awesome thing about being one of His servants. His amazing grace allows us to take part in what He's doing. That's amazing that God would allow us the opportunity to take part in what he's doing on this earth. I think we oversee that sometimes. I think we invest this one hour a week and we just oversee the fact that, man, God has graciously bestowed upon us an abundant amount of grace. And he allows us to take part in the ministry that he is doing. Secondly, we're going to see in verse four. I love verse four. That pride is despised by God. It's despised. First, it's deceptive. It's also despised. He tells them. He's like, I see you, Edom. I see where you're at in the cleft of the rock. And he says, though you soar aloft like the eagle, because you're sitting in this rock and you're sitting so high, it's almost impossible for people to get to you. I see you up there. Though your nest is set among the stars. And God says, from there, from there, I will bring you down, declares the Lord. I will bring you down, declares the Lord. And the Pharisees, in Luke 16, 14 through 15, the Pharisees also, who were covetous, heard all these things, and they derided him. And he said unto them, You are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. That's scary to think that God despises our pride so much that he causes an abomination. And I, t- I just, I don't know, I compare scriptures back and forth and I, I start looking at what else God calls an abomination. I, I come into Leviticus chapter 18, I'm seeing this list of sins and God's calling them abominations. And when I put pride in that list, dude, it's something that I don't need to have at all except in Christ. At all, ever. Because I wouldn't dare do anything in, the, in that list in 18. And you can go back and look at it, but when we, when we just see what, how... Jesus calls pride an abomination in that verse and how it's referred to in the Old Testament writings. An abomination is, is something serious. Um, Fawcett's Bible Dictionary just defines it literally as an, an object of disgust, a detestable act or a ceremonial pollution is what our pride is. It's an abomination. It's detestable. It's a ceremonial pollution. It will pollute our worship services. See, God will bring down the pride as he tells us in 4 through 7. We just read forward. If you pick back up with me in 5, and he tells them here, if thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If break gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged. His treasure sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Basically, God's telling you, you have no understanding of the wrath that I'm going to rain down on you. Preaching from the prophets can be fun. Because the prophets literally come in and they preach God's wrath. 
But at the same time, we have to take into account what God's saying here. And as I think about this, you know, we see like three things here. Basically, Edom's attackers are going to come by night. The second thing that we see is they're not going to stop where normal thieves leave off. They're going to take everything. Everything. And then thirdly, their attackers would be their neighbors, their allies. As you look at the, the city, when you go home and you Google Edom and you Google Petra and you look at the images, I want you to try to see the map and just imagine that this city's up here. And in the foothills of this city, you have all these tribes and all these people groups that are literally prospering off the success of Edom. And God's like, I'm going to raise them up against you. Your allies, the people that are prospering off your wealth, are going to be raised up against you. So the question is, as I think about this, have any of y'all ever been robbed before? Broken into your house? And you can show hands. We can have a discourse. If not, man, God bless you. We got robbed one time. I was in college. I had been at an Ole Miss football game. I was celebrating the Rebels probably to another loss. <laughs> and we come home kind of defeated, deflated. I got in my bedroom and I, I really, and I keep a clean room in college. I rarely ever made my bed up, but my pillows had pillowcases on them. And I realized, oh, I had pillowcases. Like, this is weird. So I go across the hall to my buddy Paul. He's a big name hotshot chef up in D.C. now. And uh, I'm like, Paul, did you take my pillowcases? And he's like, dude, it's a weird question. No. And uh, so he goes in his room and He's like, do you take my pillowcases? I'm like, no. At this time, our third roommate, who's on the back side of the house, he's coming up. He's like, dude, why don't take my pillowcases? I'm like, Stuart, they take your pillowcases. So this seems kind of strange. So we start turning the lights on around the house, and we look around, and we realize there's a window open. So we start walking through the house, and we realize that, man, somebody had taken our pillowcases and gone shopping through our house. They'd just taken whatever they wanted. And they, they had robbed us. They had pillaged us. They had taken... Things from us, things that we had worked for, things that we had earned, things that we had bought. But you know, at the same time, they also came in and uninvited, unwelcome, and stole from us. It was a disheartening feeling. It was just a feeling of being a little uncomfortable in your own house where you should feel safe. But at the same time, they didn't take everything. You know, I could go to the refrigerator and open the door, there was still food there. There were still a couple of TVs, and we had a couple of video games left, and we had a couple of movies left. They didn't take every single thing that we had. They didn't destroy us to the point of rubble. But what God's saying here to Edom is, look, man, I'm going to rise up your friends, your allies, that are actually prospering off of where you're at. And when they come in, they're going to literally destroy everything that you have. They're going to take every possession you have. And I'm going to raise them up, and they're going to destroy you completely. God says, I will bring you down. See, when we got robbed, we still had something left. God's given this message to Edom through Obadiah that, man, when you get robbed, when you get pillaged, when you get plundered, you will have absolutely nothing left. And that's scary to think about. If they would have taken everything that we had and burned our house down, it would have been a whole lot worse. I could still eat. I could still make to the next paycheck. God's saying, eat them. It's one and done. You are not going to have anything left when I'm done with you. It's scary to think about that God literally despises our pride. Thirdly, we see that our pride is destructive. Look at verse 15. It says, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. 
again, God's showing his sovereignty over all nations. It says, as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return your own, on your own head. This literally is basically saying to us that, man, you're going to reap what you sow. You're going to reap what you sow. Our pride is destructive to us. We see it repeatedly in the Bible. Y'all probably remember the story of, of Jacob's story in Genesis 27 through 29. And we, we know that, man, he went in and he deceived his father for his birthright, which God had already told his mother was going to be his. And she kind of headed him up in that. But he goes in and he deceives his father. And he gets Esau's birthright. But what we see here is that he comes back to, to haunt him. He reaps what he sows. Because then he was deceived by Laban, his uncle. Remember, he goes out and he wants to, to marry. And he, he finally gets this opportunity after seven years of service to marry. And when he lifts the veil at the wedding ceremony, it's not who he wanted to marry, was it? He married Leah. After seven years of service, and Laban's like, look, man, if you want to marry my other daughter, the one you really want, I need another seven years. He reaped what he sowed. He was deceptive. Laban was deceptive to him. If you remember the story of Ahab and Jezebel in 1 Kings, it goes from about 21 to 22, what I'm looking at. They schemed this murderous plot to kill Naboth in the vineyard. And God sent Elijah with this message right here from the King James. It reads, And thou shalt speak unto him, saying, This saith the Lord, Hast thou killed and also taken possessions? Thou shalt speak unto him, saying, This saith the Lord, In the place where the dogs licked the blood of Naboth, Shall dogs lick thy blood, even thine? We need to get back to the day where we can sit here and proclaim the Bible from pulpits and say, This saith the Lord, and know that it's going to happen because it happened right here. This saith the Lord in the day, it's going to happen. And it happens to him. Ahab was wounded in battle, if you remember. And as he died, they took the, the, the chariot that he was in back to Samaria. At the pool of Samaria, they begin to clean this chariot. And what happens? The dogs literally come up and start licking his blood. Man, did he not reap what he sowed? When we think about the Apostle Paul, we look at the end of chapter 7 in Acts, right? And what do we see? We see Stephen, after he proclaimed his faith in Christ and preached a beautiful message about who Jesus is, he's carried out to the outskirts of the city, and he's stoned to death. And as they begin to stone, they take their, their garments off, and they lay them at Saul's feet, right? And we know that... that the next chapter, 8-1, it tells us that Saul was consenting unto his death. And as the apostles and the, as the other, the other Christians begin to disperse out of Jerusalem, we see the gospel spread. And again, it shows us God's sovereignty. But what happens with Saul is we know that he gets saved in Acts chapter 9. And he accepts Christ and he has this Damascus Road experience. And it's amazing. But man, he still reaped what he sowed. If we remember later on, as he's over in the Galatian countryside. And he's preaching to the churches in southern Galatia and planting churches there. Paul comes across the city, and he's in Lystra. And what happens is, man, they, he preaches the gospel, as Paul always does when he enters the city. And they carry him outside the city, and they stone him and leave him for dead. He reaped what he sowed. And it's so scary to think that we're going to reap what we sow in life. So the question is, what are you sowing for the kingdom of God today? What are we sowing for the kingdom of God in our everyday lives. I hope that the seeds that I'm sowing are for the kingdom of God. And that when harvesters come behind me, they will reap what I sow. That's my prayer. Am I living it out? I try to. What are we sowing for the kingdom of God? This is an old country preacher quote that one of my professors used to say all the time. If you aim at nothing, you hit it every time. 
like, dude, I'm good at that. You know? <laughs> but seriously, when we think about what we're doing for the kingdom of God, if we aim at nothing, we'll hit it every time. At least have a goal. At least ch- pray this prayer. God's always answered for me. God, give me somebody to witness to today. I guarantee you, somebody will also be standing in front of you. Because they're everywhere. <laughs> you want to see church grow? Evangelize the lost. They're everywhere. Sow seeds for the kingdom of God. For him. Put your pride in him. You see, God will not be mocked. We will reap what we sow. Edom's crimes are spelled out in verses 10 through 16. Or I'm going to look at verse 10 through 14. And just follow along with me. Because that Obadiah, just, he just goes off here. But he tells them that because the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day of the on the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. What we're seeing here is Edom's crowds. What we're seeing is what Edom did to their brother Jacob, to, to Judah. What we see is what they did when the Babylonians were coming in. To take them over. They just helped them. They're like, sure, we'll help you out. We'll cut them off. We'll loot from them. We'll have glory in the fact that you're taking them over. In verse 10, we see literally they had violence against their brother Jacob. In verse 11, they withheld assistance from their brother Jacob. In verse 12, they rejoiced in the downfall of Judah. In verse 13, they plundered the city when the Babylonians came through. In verse 14, they prevented the fugitives from escaping. What we have to see in this picture here, guys, is that God's near judgment of Edom is a preview of his far judgment of all nations. All nations, all people who refuse to bow to the sovereignty of God, we see a preview of that judgment here. We have to remember that God is sovereign and that he rules over this world right now. And God turns the course of history and nations as he pleases. He is that powerful. When he sees a nation like Edom rise up against their brother and take pride in everything that they've done, God comes in and literally says, I will bring you down. God is sovereign over history, over nations. As men and women, we literally are going to face the judgment at the end times. For those of us that are saved, those of us that are the elect, those of us that are, are called according to his purpose, we'll face our judgment time in the end times. For those people that are lost at the second resurrection, they'll be raised up and they'll face a judgment at the white throne of judgment. For us that are saved, we'll face our judgment at the beam of seat of Christ, at the judgment seat of Christ, and we'll give an account for the life we live. What we have to see about nations is that nations will literally face their judgment in the course of history. It's laid out in scripture. Nations will face their judgment in the course of history. Now I know. In looking at the book of Obadiah. That this is God's wrath against an Old Testament nation. Because they rose up against. In pride against his chosen people. But we don't have to stretch our imagination too far. To see the nation that we live in. 
the society that we live in, the county that we live in, hey, the area and zip code which we live in is just about as guilty of the same offenses as Edom. I would stretch so far to say that many of our churches and our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ are guilty of the same things that Edom was found guilty of. And we have to understand the need for repentance and revival is so crucial because unlike people, nations will face their judgment in history. Whether it's our time or our descendants' time, it will be faced in history. We have nothing at all to take pride in or to boast in except one thing, and that is our relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If we boast in anything else, I hate to tell you, it is sin against God. If we take pride in anything else, it's rebellious against God. Now, things in my life that I try to take pride in now are my kids, my family, the things that God's doing in my life. God gave me those kids. I promise you, if y'all saw them beforehand, you would know that an ugly guy like me does not deserve those kids. They are blonde-haired, blue-eyed, precious little girls. God gave me those. I boast in them. But Paul tells us in Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians one thirty-one, he says that according as it is written, him that glorifieth, or him that boasts, or him that has pride, let him glory or boast or have pride in the Lord. Basically, Paul's saying there, if you glorify anything, Glorify God. If you boast in anything, boast in God. If you take pride in anything, take pride in God and God alone. So the question today is, what are we taking pride in? What is it? And it can be different for every one of us. I think that we see that pride in anything else is destructive, it's despised, and it's full of deception. So the last view that I want to look at with pride in our conclusion here is that God provides deliverance. Look in verse 17. It says, But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape. It shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. We have to understand that Obadiah is giving this message. They had just been swept off into Babylonian captivity. And he's telling them, But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape. It shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire. And the house of Joseph a flame. And the house of Esau a stubble. They shall burn them and consume them. And there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. This is looking forward to when the Messiah intercedes and establishes his kingdom. And his holiness prevails here on earth. What we have to see, guys, is that God provides deliverance from the evil of the enemies of his people. He provides deliverance from our sinfulness and unrighteous pride. He provides deliverance from our deserved impending doom. He provides deliverance from his righteous wrath. You see, God provides this deliverance to all people. At the cross of Jesus Christ. To all those who are willing to accept his free gift of grace. To all those who are willing to accept the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. To all those who will place their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. You see, we might be a prideful people. We might be boasting in anything but Christ right now. But God provides deliverance from that at the cross of Jesus Christ. To all those who are willing to call out on his name. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If we are willing to go out. And just humble ourselves to the point of just total selling out to Christ and giving ourselves to Him. God will provide deliverance from our sins. In just a moment, we'll have an invitation. Today, I just want to challenge you to place your only pride 
in Jesus Christ. Accept the deliverance that God provides. You may be sitting here this morning and God's convicted you of idols that you have in your life. Things that you're putting pride in above him. That's basically what an idol is. Anything that we place before God. As I was watching the football yesterday, Ole Miss has about 60,000 person stadium. We do standing room only. I think we get about, what, 64? That's small. Across this nation, there are gatherings of people in excess of 100,000 people cheering on other people playing a game. It's crazy to me. I get wrapped up in it too. Today, my service goes from 11 to 12. That's not good down here. Because the Saints kicked off last week at 12. I preached about 38 minutes, so they were a little late. I made them miss kickoff. They don't, first week, they don't like me. <laughs> so we do it on Saturday. We turn around, we do it again on Sunday. What if we were that energetic and put that much pride and that much excitement into our worship of Jesus Christ? If our churches were packed out to the point where if we had 60,000 people in standing room only, praising the only thing worth being praised, what would church look like? And it'd be amazing. It'd be amazing to see that many people that excited about Jesus. If there's something that we put above Christ, man, today is a day. This invitation is for us. If you have a burden for revival, for repentance in this church, this invitation is for you. If you're lost, this invitation is for you. This invitation is for each of us to respond to the word of God. Let me pray for us. Father God, Lord, we thank you so much again for the opportunity you've given us, Lord, just to gather together, Lord, and just worship you, to study your word. Lord, I pray for Aaron as he leads his congregation, Lord. I pray that you would continue to bless it in the way that you have blessed it thus far, Father. Lord, I pray for Redeemer Baptist Church, for each and every person that's here, Lord. For those that didn't make it today, Father, that you would just continue to motivate them and encourage them, Father, to go out and spread the word that, Lord, you are here and that you are blessing this congregation and this church. And, Father, I just pray for the leaders here, Father, that you just continue to, to encourage them along, Lord. Is we know that your call is so great and so difficult, Father. Without you, it would be impossible. Lord, I pray that as we look at our lives, as we take a, an internal evaluation of what we're doing, whether if we place our pride in anything else but you, Father, that you would just convict us of that and call us to repentance. Lord, ultimately, we just pray for revival in this nation, this land, this state, this county. Father, we pray for repentance among your believers. Lord, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.